This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Happy Monday, as happy as it can be when it's freezing cold. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering Bible questions and life questions and whatever is on your heart. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585 if you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvaryessay.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just at the call now. Banner at the top of the screen, you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Just before we went on air, my producer said, here's the forecast, cold. So be safe out there and be warm. Hey, a couple of programming notes before we get started into some of the questions. Um, Tonight here at Calvary Chapel, uh, our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies are all taking place at 7 o'clock. Um, Paula will be teaching the ladies, Pastor Ken, the men, of course, and then our high school pastor, youth pastor, Pastor Nelly, and Chris Sanchez will be doing the high schoolers in the junior high school. All of that at 7 o'clock. Ladies, you can live stream Paula's message at calvarysa.com at 7 o'clock. Okay, well, there's nothing going on. I hope you had a great day in church yesterday. Um, hope you're just happy to be back in church. I'm grateful. Here's the first question. It comes from Joseph. He said, I believe the rapture of the church will happen with the final trumpet judgment in Revelation, according to 1 Corinthians 15.51. Do you agree? Joseph, I don't. The, the trumpet judgments, the, there's, there's three series of judgments. The, the uh, seals, the trumpets, and then the bold judgments or vile judgments um, in the Great Tribulation. All of them, by the way, are part of the Great uh, tribulation, the great tribulation is the wrath of God being poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. That means it can't be um, uh, true that Christians are going to be there. And yours, your theory is called either the pre-wrath or the or the post-tribulation or mid-tribulation um, rapture timing belief. But um, the 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 First Corinthians fifteen uh, at the last trump has nothing whatsoever to do with the trumpet judgments. Now remember, uh, in, in Israel, in Jewish history, trumpets were used, they're still used by armies all over the world. Um, they're used to signal readiness, to signal calls, to advance, to retreat. They have all those different trumpet judgments. And so the imagery here is very important. Um, at the last trump in 1 Corinthians 15 um, just means at the, at the last moment when it's time to be ready. And again, this has nothing whatsoever to do with the trumpet judgments in the book of Revelation. So uh, I disagree. I disagree with you strongly, Joseph, but of course you are entitled to that opinion. Here is a question from Carl. I'm sorry, it's Carlos. Carlos says, uh, Pastor Ron, are there some issues important enough that Christians should divide over? Um, Christians, Carlos, no, should not divide over issues. I don't know whether you're talking about biblical issues or political issues. Uh, Christians um, that that hold to the essentials of the historic Christian faith, uh, we ought to be able to fellowship with them, to work together with them, 
uh, in spite of differences in non-essential doctrines. So we shouldn't uh, divide. Now, here's the problem. There are a lot of people that call themselves Christians that are not. Um, uh, the, the Christian, uh, the professing Christian who, uh, who is ecumenical in approach, who uh, doesn't hold to the distinctives, uh, the, the historical distinctives of the Christian faith. Um, yeah, there's times where we're going to have to divide um, over those issues with them. But that means, Carlos, that they're not really Christians. You know, Mormons call themselves Christians. Catholics who aren't born again call themselves Christians. And the truth of the matter is that that they're not really believers. They're not going to be in heaven. And obviously we have to divide over the Mormon view of who Christ is. The same thing is true uh, with Jehovah's Witnesses. However, they don't claim to be Christians. So I think those are the important things that we need to to, to deal with. Um, Because of what's going on in the country, you may have meant this when you asked the question, so I'm going to answer uh, very briefly. Um, We should not divide over political issues. And there is a lot of division in the church over political issues, and it just shouldn't be. Uh, I told our church yesterday that we're going to be in heaven with these people forever and ever. If they're really warning in Christians, how are we going to justify dividing from them or, or, or judging them or calling them names um, when, in fact, we both love Jesus? So Christians shouldn't divide. Unity is important, not uniformity, but unity matters. And I think anything short of that, Carlos, is a sort of an embarrassment to the body of Christ. So I hope that helps. Here's a caller on line one, Jimmy from San Antonio. Jimmy, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Oh, uh, have you ever heard of a re-engage program? Re-engage, no. Oh, well, this pastor's advertising um, on FD that come to re-engage and he's, he's telling people that you don't have to be a believer in Jesus Christ and, and you don't have to you can be agnostic to some marriage. Now, my, my thing is, and I responded to him and I said, how can you save a marriage without Jesus Christ? <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't like it. I said, yeah. first, and then I said, first seek the kingdom of God first and his righteousness and all things will come upon you. And he didn't like that, what I said. I said, well, that's, Jesus is the one that saved my marriage, okay? And I, I didn't have yeah. to pay $40 to go to a re-engaged program. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. Jimmy, if, if, if re-engage is, is uh, even close to what you just said, obviously it's heretical. And, and you're absolutely right that you cannot... Um, say a marriage is dead. We know the only answer to life is an empty tomb, resurrection, and only Jesus can do that. Um, Jimmy, it, it gives me an opportunity. I taught on, um, began last Friday night, this past Friday, on marriage. We're, do, we're in Ephesians chapter 5 in our verse-by-verse study through through the book of Ephesians. And I, I spent the entire study on wives submit to your husbands. I'm going to be starting this Friday on husbands. And there's going to be three separate studies on husbands love your wives the way Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her uh, and beyond. Um, so uh, anybody who's dealing with, with marriage difficulties, um, I, I highly recommend, not because I did it, it's just important, uh, I highly recommend the study I did Friday, and even more so for men who are the spiritual heads of the household. Uh, I highly recommend the study that I'm going to do this Friday, the following Friday. And then there's almost certainly going to be one Friday after that dealing with husbands as well. And the reason I'm going to go to that length is because Jimmy is absolutely right. There is no possible way uh, to revive a marriage apart from Christ. Paula and I, Jimmy, are going to uh, do a marriage conference or a couples conference or some such thing. I don't know what they're calling it for sure, in Oklahoma in February. And, um, um, you know, one of the first things that we tell people is Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the only way. Jimmy, thanks a lot. And I'm going to look that up. And and if I get any more information, Jimmy, we can talk to about it. Um, Talk about it with you on a later program. 
Here is an anonymous question. Pastor Ron, is it possible to love everyone, even bad people? Anonymous, uh, not only is it possible, um, but we're required to do that. Now, sometimes loving somebody is saying hard things to them, doing so in love. But yeah, we, we, we're told that we need to love everyone. Love the Lord our God with all our heart, strength, mind, and soul, but love our neighbor is like unto that command. And the word command is key here. Now, here's how it's possible to love everybody, even or especially bad people. Romans 5, 5 says that God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that he's given us. And Anonymous, if you've got the faith to reach down and convert that love, the love of God, and let that love come from you through other people, then uh, you're going to be just like Jesus. Jesus loved everyone, even when he was righteously angry, uh, even the people that were were calling for his crucifixion. Um, and, and our responsibility as his ambassadors is to do exactly the same thing. So um, the only way it's possible is by the power of the Holy Spirit, the love of God that's been poured out into our hearts, and that requires faith. Now, I want to make a distinction here, Anonymous. Um, you can love people without liking them. There's a lot of people that are just impossible to like, but the way we love them isn't to let them just do whatever they want. It's not like giving them uh, carte blanche to, to, to do anything or say anything, but the way we love them is to tell them about Jesus and then we follow that up by praying for them. And there's a lot of people that I've shared Jesus with over the years who were despicable human beings. And in fact, that would become the basis of my prayer. Lord, this is a terrible human being. He or she has only one hope, and that's you. Spirit of God, go get them and fall upon them. And, um, um, you know, like Jesus said in the parable of the sower, our job is to sow the seed, scatter the word of God, it's God's responsibility upon those whom the seed falls upon. So we just tell people about Jesus. So that's how we do it. One of the things we have to be really careful of, because it then affects our witness and affects our relationship to God, is when we don't like people, it's easy, especially if they stand for things that we are opposed uh, it's easy to fall across that line into hating them. And we want to say bad things about them, and we want to point fingers at them. And, um, you know, we, we, we're kind of like David in the caves. We pray those sick Lord prayers. Um, that's a dangerous place for any of us to be. So, Anonymous, that's the best I've got. It is difficult, but you're never more like Jesus than when you're in love praying for people that you really don't like at all. Hope that helps. 340-9585, Damon. Um, I don't know if it's Damon or Damien. Uh, it says, why is Paul the apostle to the Gentiles when it was actually Peter who introduced them to the gospel? Uh, good question, Damon. I, I, I love uh, Acts chapter 10, where Peter, who is sort of the ranking apostle of, of the time, um, the Apostle Paul is just brand new in the Lord. And in fact, um, Peter serves as sort of a warm-up act for the Apostle Paul, who is being taught by Jesus himself. You remember old talk shows or uh, Johnny Carson, they had, they had Ed McMahon, they'd go out and warm up the crowd and Ed McMahon would do the introductions. Well, um, Peter was actually the front man for the Apostle Paul's ministry. Um, Jews of the day, in the day of, of the early church, Jews hated Gentiles. Gentiles hated Jews. Uh, Jews actually believed that if there was any plan at all uh, for Gentiles in the afterlife, it would be to burn their bodies uh, to sort of add fuel to the flames of hell. That, that's how animus... Um, um, the two groups were uh, one against the other. Um, Peter 
um, sort of the ranking apostle of the time. Uh, he was the one God sent because he needed to validate that God was including Gentiles in his plan of salvation. Now, Jesus hinted at it. Jesus said, I have sheep that are not of the sheepfold. Uh, the Old Testament uh, prophets spoke of, of a ministry not just to Jews, but to Gentiles. And in this particular case, Damon, um, Peter would be the one who would need to go. Now, you'll also remember, we can go back to chapter 8, and it was Peter and John who were sent to the Samaritans because Jews hated Samaritans too, and they didn't believe that God would save Samaritans. So these Jews who were Christians now, and the church was completely Jewish until Acts chapter 10, um, they needed to validate that the Holy Spirit was poured out them the same way it was on us, and that's why God sent Peter, just to show that God is opening the doors of heaven, not just to Jews, but also to Gentiles. But make no mistake, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. He is the one who took the um, gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are our ancestors, uh, those of us who live some 2,000 years later. And that's the way the, the gospel message spread throughout the world. So I think that is uh, a wonderful plan God had. So Peter and John used to validate the ministry of the Samaritans and also the ministry to the Gentiles. I can only imagine when Peter came back to Jerusalem and had to explain what he was doing in the house of a Gentile. I can only imagine the looks on the faces when he said, look, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on them the same way he was on us, who am I to forbid them? And the truth is that um, God a perfect plan. And as Peter was sharing with Cornelius and his household, um, Saul of Tarsus was warming up in the bullpen and he would finish the job. Good question. Here is a question from Raymond. Raymond says, what is your opinion on those or of those who say that all prophecy has been fulfilled. Well, Raymond, I think they're not serious students of the word. I realize that there are some preterists uh, in particular who believe that all prophecy was fulfilled in 70 AD. Um, the truth of the matter is, is that is a childish reading of Scripture. I mean, all you have to do is, and, and this is the easiest litmus test, go to Isaiah chapter 60 to the end of, the, of, of his prophecy. And it's all about prophecies that obviously have not yet been fulfilled. You go to the book of Revelation, the end when it talks about the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. That has not yet been fulfilled. And so the way they deal with it is sort of, sort of allegorize or spiritualize uh, those prophecies. But it is clear, um, undeniably so. You've got to want to be deceived in order to believe that all prophecy has been fulfilled. And Raymond, wouldn't it be tragic if all prophecy was fulfilled and this was the best it was going to be? I mean, think about that for a moment. If this is the best we're going to get, then we serve a God who hasn't kept his promises neither to Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, or, nor to, to me or to you. So they're, they're, they're uh, wrong, they're misleading. Uh, this is not uh, an issue of, uh, that deals with the essentials of the Christian faith. Um, there are people who believe this, that our real Christians are going to be in heaven. Um, but I can tell you this, their ministries, their lives, certainly are not producing um, good fruit for the kingdom of God. So Raymond, that's as direct as I can be with that question. Hey, we'd love to have your calls and questions this week. It's cold. you got nothing else to do, so you might as well call 340-9585. Michael says, Pastor, was Simon the leper the same man as Jesus' disciple Simon? No, Michael, not at all. Simon the leper was a Pharisee, um, and obviously he was Simon the former leper. Uh, that means he would have been a man that was healed by Jesus um, but I, I, I do a message about this occasionally. Um, people won't let you let go of your past. Instead of saying Simon the former leper, he was just always known as the leper. 
wonder how often he would think, come on, that was used to be. I'm not in that way anymore. Jesus healed me. But no, he, he was a completely different person. Jesus' disciple, Simon, and I'm not talking about Peter here. I'm talking about Simon the Zealot. Um, the, uh, uh, Simon was just the opposite of a Pharisee. He would have, before Jesus killed a Pharisee, just as soon as look at him. Um, and the Zealots were dedicated, committed to wiping out um, um, not only Rome, but the Jews who conspired with Rome. Remember that in, in, in Jesus' day, Annas and Caiaphas, they bought their way into the priesthood, and Simon the Zealot would have just been uh, unable to live with even that that concept. So they weren't the idea. Simon was a very, just like Jesus um, uh, was, Simon was a very common name um, in, in the Jewish culture. Uh, we have, in fact, eight Simons who are listed in Scripture. That's how common the name was. So different people, Michael. Thank you for the question. Um, it's an anonymous question. i got five minutes. I can do this. Um, anonymous says, what should a husband do if his wife refuses to be intimate with him? Um, uh, I, can't, I can't, not knowing any details other than what you ask. Um, I'll be direct but, but brief. Um, the first thing you ought to do, I'm assuming Christians, um, the first thing you ought to do is you and your wife go talk to your pastor. Um, it's just something that has to be done. Um, your, your marriage, if there's no intimacy, uh, is not uh, rightly representing the Lord. Uh, your witness is being compromised uh, in any man who whose wife uh, cuts him off from intimacy. Um, he is going to grow bitter and it's just going to affect everything about your Christian walk. Um, Obviously, you've talked with her about it, but you need to go to, to counseling. And I'm not talking about a counselor. I'm talking about go to your pastor. This is a spiritual problem. It's not a physical problem. It's not an emotional problem. It is a spiritual problem. Now, having said that, let me be sure to say to you, husband, that you need to be doing everything you can to make your wife feel beautiful, loved, Precious in the eyes of God. You should be loving her sacrificially. We're going to be talking about that beginning this Friday night. Um, you should keep yourself clean. Be sure that that you, you, you're not offensive in any way in terms of, of uh, not being clean, having terrible breath. Um, um, make sure that you're a considerate lover. Those kind of things. Um, you know, it's awfully difficult for a woman to um, open herself to her husband if her husband is always taking or taking advantage or being unkind. Um, uh, and that's why this is just an impossible question to deal with without any information. Uh, if you were in our church, Anonymous, um, our counseling session would start with, let's talk about the reasons why. And... Um, but I can say this, it, it's, a, it's a marriage that is in a really, really dangerous place and um, you need help and you need help right away. If she won't go, then you go, you tell your pastor and let him get some ladies to go to your wife and talk to her. Very, very important. Two minutes left in this half of the program. Rory asks me, what title do I prefer, pastor or reverend, um, Roy, I, I think pastor is is the greatest title in the world. I love my job. I love the fact that God allows me to um, to to be people's pastor, people that I love. Um, it is apart from being Paula's husband, the greatest honor of my life, and so I I strongly prefer pastor. Not only that, Rory, but I completely reject the title of reverend. No man is reverend. No man ought to consider himself a reverend. I realize people go to seminaries and they, they graduate and they receive the title of reverend, but, but there's no one reverend but one, and his name is Jesus Christ. 
And uh, I think it is a, a, a prideful title. Um, and I know we like being thought well of by people in the world and certainly our peers. So reverend has sort of a, 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 a tone of acceptance to it. Uh, but it's a lie. It's a flat-out lie. No one is reverend, and no one ought to be called reverend. So you can call me pastor. You can call me Ron. Uh, but if you call me reverend, I'll correct you, because I am not reverend in any fashion or form. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the Monday show, a brand new, very chilly week out there. 340-9585 or toll-free 877 877- 630-KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. I'll be back in two minutes. Don't have time to call into the word to stand on for life? No problem. If you've got questions, you can email them to Pastor Ron at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program, 340-9585, for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Victor. Who is Veronica, and is she mentioned in the Bible? Victor Veronica is not mentioned in the Bible. Um, Veronica in Catholic tradition, and there are other traditions, uh, Orthodox, um, um, some uh, Episcopal traditions as well, says that she's the woman who had the 12-year issue of blood that touched Jesus' hymn or the hymn of his, his robe and was healed of her issue of blood and that she was also there when he fell on his way to the cross and he took off, she took off her head covering and wiped his face with it. And the tradition holds that when she wiped his face with it and she took the, 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 the head covering away, it had the impression of his face on it. And of course, then that was considered to have healing powers and that tradition just sort of blossomed. But it's all silliness. It doesn't uh, have any uh, foundation at all. Um, she's not the woman with the 12-year issue of blood. Um, and, and the Bible talks about Simon, um, uh, the Cyrene, who was there when Jesus fell, but nobody else. So this is just tradition. Um, she is actually St. Veronica uh, in some traditions. And um, those are the kind of worthless traditions that we really need to be careful of. It's, um, there's no merit whatsoever uh, to those traditions. Funny story, Victor. I was um, doing a radio program. This is before we started this program. Uh, I was a guest on on KSLR, um, an old t- talk show host um, who who I I'm used to listen to all the time, Adam McManus, um, who was a good guy, by the way, um, had me on, and, and uh, I was ans- answering some questions one day. And um, I had somebody call me who was, uh, I guess she called her a Veronica devotee, and she wanted to debate me. And I just said, no, I'm really not uh, interested in debating with people. I just want to tell people about Jesus. And we sort of left it there. But that's the only reason I know anything about uh, Veronica. Um, remember, I, I said this before in the program, I was not raised in church I, I didn't have any religious baggage at all. And so when I was asked that question uh, by her, I had to dig and see who Veronica was. And that's who she is, but she isn't real. Here's a question from Marty. Are Ananias and Sapphira, because they died without confessing their sins, are they in hell? Um, we don't know, Marty. Um, it's not a matter of confessing their sins. If they were truly born again, um, um, all their sins, past, present, and future, were forgiven. 
Um, we don't know. Now, I'll tell you where I lean, Marty. I lean, um, and this has changed over the years, just thinking more about the nature of God. Um, I lean toward believing they were Christians who made such a severe mistake that the penalty was death. The Apostle John writes that there is a sin that leads to death. I think this was an example of that. So I believe they were saved. I, I believe they made a terrible judgment. And I, I also believe that rather than overacting, as some accuse God of, by, by killing them, God was very gracious with them through Peter. He gave both of them a chance to straighten it out and, and undo the lie. But you have to remember that this was the very first time that the enemy found people that he could use inside the church. Up until Acts chapter 5, all of the persecution was coming from outside of the church, without. But here in Acts chapter 5 is when the enemy started working from within. And I think the reason that they were sentenced to death so quickly, I just think it was God making a one-time statement about how he feels about the hypocrisy of believers. Now, he doesn't kill us anymore. Um, Maybe if he did, we wouldn't have as many hypocrites, people saying one thing and living another thing. But um, the very first one, I think God was making a statement. I think he was saying, this is my holy church. This is my bride. And um, I'm not going to tolerate people from within trying to destroy the church. He expects it, we expect it, or at least we should from without, but from within, it's a very serious matter when people try to divide the body of Christ and sort through them. But but Marty, I personally think that they are uh, they were believers and they are in heaven and we will get to meet them when we when we get there. Very important. God makes these statements and when he does we need to understand that's something that he feels deeply about. And the purity of his church, the holiness of his church is one of those things. Philip says, how can we say that God loves everyone when he actually hardens some people's hearts like Pharaoh? Um, You know, Philip, we know God loves everyone because God is love. Uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes would have Um, would not perish but have everlasting life. So we don't have to ask questions about does God love everyone. He's already demonstrated that beyond any possibility of of, um, being misunderstood. When somebody says, I don't feel like God loves me, uh, all you have to do is point to the cross. That's proof. It's, It's as though God says, okay, what can I do that would convince everybody once and for all that I love them? I know. I'll let my son die in their place. Okay, so having dealt with that, why does God harden some people's hearts like he hardened Pharaoh's hearts? Or Pharaoh's heart? The answer is simple. If you read that exchange between Pharaoh and God, uh, there were seven times that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Seven times. And then after that, it says God hardened his heart. And all that means, Philip is that he gave Pharaoh over to his own heart. In other words, God knew that Pharaoh had crossed that line and wasn't going to change. And so God just let him go. And I think that's the the, the scariest thing. You know, when when we harden our heart against God, uh, we never know when we're going to cross that line. When I got saved, Philip, uh, it was a very, very long time ago. Um, um, 30 years almost on on, um, next month, in fact. Um, When I got saved, I knew that that was my last chance. Don't ask me how I knew. I just knew. Uh, Paul had been praying for me for 13 years. Uh, The six months before I was a Christian, I was a a business owner. And it seemed like everybody that I hired was a Christian. I didn't know it. And everybody had Bibles. Everybody was telling me about Jesus. Jesus. So, so I had plenty of opportunities. And that afternoon that I was running away from home um, and, and actually encountered Jesus, I knew that it was my last chance. I don't know whether I was going to die physically. I was going to have a breakdown. 
I just knew it was my last chance. And, um, you know, most people don't know that. And so when we harden our heart against God, there are times when God simply says, okay, you don't want what I'm offering, then I'm going to leave you alone. And that's when our hearts harden, Philip. Uh, God doesn't do it. We do it. Let's go to Ray on line one. Ray, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hello, Pastor Ron. Hi, Happy Ray. Happy Monday. And uh, I, I don't mean to, you know, uh, give you a, a difficult thing here, but since there's so many Catholics in our vicinity, and I was raised Catholic, do you have any thoughts uh, about Lourdes? You know, the grotto? Yeah, not not any informed thoughts, Ray. I don't. Um, I have uh, been there and, uh, and uh, saw the, you know, uh, crutches and stuff hanging yeah. up in the grotto and you know, there's water that you can get there, and I, I just wondered if you had any any uh, thought about that. And I'll and I'll just listen. Thank you, Ray. God bless you. Um, you know, I, I'm, uh, I, my, my own exposure, Lord. I haven't done any studying, so I won't comment. I, I did see a 60 Minutes program many years ago on Lords doing sort of their own investigation. Um, but but we have been uh, to the Basilica um, in the valley, um, and and we saw exactly the same thing when people with lighting all the candles walked in the candle room, and it was probably thirty degrees hotter than it was outside, and it was hot. Um, but but the same thing, they had uh, wheelchairs, um, crutches, all kinds of things, you know, nailed on the wall. Where, where uh, apparently miracles happened, they had people who were were crawling on their knees uh, into the holy water and those kind of things. And and Ray, the truth is that's just religious nonsense. If somebody gets healed there, and I say if because there's no substantial evidence, but if somebody gets healed there, it's because the merciful God reached down and touched them. And and then what he's going to do? He's going to he's going to bring their heart to a to a real um, relationship with him. Um, but, um, you know, that's sort of like faith healers in the Christian church. Um, it's just a show. Um, and, and it's, it's not real. So that's, that's the best I can do. And I know I'm going to get angry responses for that, but that's okay. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is my next question. It comes from anonymous. Um, I know wives are are to submit to their husbands, but what if the husband isn't following God? Anonymous, uh, I'll, I'll answer this very briefly, but let me refer you to the Bible study that I just did Friday, CalvarySA.com, because this is the verse, verse twenty two, uh, in Ephesians chapter five that I covered just a few days ago. Um, yes, wives are submit to their husbands, and there's no bad husband escape clause. You know, there's no loophole there. First um, Peter chapter 3 is an example. When your husband's over without a word. So yes, you're to submit to the leadership of your husbands because God has given the marriage uh, order. And the way the order comes is in the in the in the the form of roles. The husband is a leader. The wife submits. That does not make the husband the boss. It doesn't mean that the man is more spiritual uh, or more righteous. None of that. It's just God says this is the way marriage in the church is going to be. And if your husband isn't following God, then your responsibility, anonymous, is for you to follow God. And when you do what you're supposed to do, when you're relationship with God is right, then you can do what Paula did for 13 years. She prayed for me. Now, hopefully it won't take 13 years. But when you are doing everything that you're supposed to be doing, when you're rightly representing Jesus because you want your husband saved, not so that your life will get better, not so that your husband will treat you better, not so that you'll know your husband loves you, but just because you love Jesus, when you're doing your part, then you can pray with an unencumbered heart and say, Lord, save my husband. 
You know, I think, Paula, and I talked about this very briefly um, on, on the program last Thursday, but um, she she will tell you that for the first 10 years of the 13 years that she was praying for me, she was praying really not for me. She was praying for herself. Lord, fix him or kill him so my life will be easier, so my life will be better. And what God did was make sure that she really loved me. And he put that love in her heart and, and he challenged her repeatedly. If you love me, you love what I love and I love Ron. And, uh, and once that 10 years was gone, it didn't take that long for me to, to uh, get on my knees and follow the Lord. So um, if your husband isn't following God, you need to be um, really connected to your church. Not only connected, but serving. Uh, you need to be getting fed. You need to be spending uh, your own time in the Word. You need to be in prayer constantly. Um, be be sure your heart is right. You're praying the right things with the right motive. But um, I, I can't think of a more difficult position for a Christian to be in than to be married to an unbeliever. So um, you've got to surround yourself with the presence of the Lord. You've got to really, really dig into the Word and be involved. Have a support system at church. Uh, have people that are praying for you and for your husband. Um, but yeah, you, you don't get a loophole. If you refuse to submit, God is trying to teach you to submit to him by submitting to your husband. So I hope that makes sense to you. Thank you, Anonymous. Go to last Sunday's, um, or last Friday's, rather, Bible study uh, at calvaryessay.com. Here is a question from Bryce that was just called into the studio. Um, He asks, how to politely leave a Bible group? Um, Bryce, I don't think it's hard. I don't you didn't say the reason that you were going to leave it. But if the Lord is leading you somewhere else or if the Bible group is simply not solid, um, I, I don't think you need to worry about being polite. You're probably a really polite guy, even that you're asking the question. I think um, the next time you go now, if this has been a long term relationship, I think then you do probably owe them uh, an in-person explanation. But you you simply go to them the next Bible study and say, you know, I really want to thank you men, you women, who've been part of my life now for however long it's been. Um, But the Lord is moving me on. I'm going to be uh, going to a new church or a new Bible study group and and, uh, ask you to pray for me because God's doing some neat new things and that's what I'm going to do. And you don't really owe them any explanation beyond that. You have to debate with them or argue with them. But but here's the thing. If they're not teaching the Word faithfully, uh, if God is moving you somewhere else, then you got to go. It's that simple. So uh, you know your heart. Um, you pray for them. Ask them for their prayers and support. But but when God is moving you, you got to go. And by the way, um, caller, Bryce, uh, I am going to be teaching on um, Wednesday, uh, day after tomorrow, um, in Genesis 31. And uh, whenever I teach Genesis 31, uh, I'm reminded that God moves people according to a timetable that doesn't always make sense to the rest of us. And uh, I would encourage you to listen to that. Uh, you can go to calvaryessay.com and watch it live stream. Or you can join us or just watch it at, or listen to it after the fact. Uh, but um, uh, I believe the Holy Spirit will speak to your heart. Um, Jacob is is being roped in again by Laban, and he clearly knows from chapter 30 that it's time to move on. And he's sort of tricked into staying a little while longer. And so God recreates circumstances, so he really has no choice but to leave. When God says to go, it's time to go. So Bryce, I hope that is the answer to your question. I appreciate the call very, very much. Here is a question from Wendy. Is it ever okay to drink alcohol even in moderation? Um, Wendy, yeah, I can say it's okay if you want to. Um, Certainly it's never okay to get drunk. Um, Paul says all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. I think as a pastor who's seen alcohol destroy many, many lives over the years, um, I would ask you, is it beneficial? 
Does it enhance your walk with Jesus? If it doesn't, why would you even want to do it? And often, Wendy, when I'm asked questions the way that you pose this question, it's almost as though the Holy Spirit is already sort of knocking on the door of your heart and asking you to put those things away because he's got something he wants to do. I've never known anybody who could effectively witness when they're drinking. Uh, We go to fine restaurants sometimes, and uh, of course they want to bring the wine list and ask us if we want uh, anything to drink from the bar or from the wine list. And we always make sure they understand right away, no water is fine, we don't drink. And then in subsequent conversation, we will often get an opportunity to share a little bit with our server, and we want them to know. Now imagine if we say, yeah, and we're drinking alcohol, Uh, Imagine later if the opportunity to to share comes up and I feel uncomfortable doing it because I'm drinking. So I I don't, I I said in my Bible study yesterday, do not go beyond what is written. And and I certainly won't do that even when I wish nobody drank. Um, But, but yeah, it doesn't say that it's, it's a, a sin to drink. And so, um, yeah, it's okay. What, what I would ask you to do, what I'd ask any believer to do, is take this before the Lord. Anything not of faith is sin, Romans fourteen twenty three says. So if you can drink moderately uh, with a clear heart, clear conscience, then um, it's wrong for anybody to say that you shouldn't. I wish you wouldn't, but it's not up to me. Here's a tough question. Anonymous says, I messed up and lost my wife. Will Jesus restore my marriage? Anonymous, the answer to the question is, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know details. I don't know how badly you messed up or or, or under what circumstances. I don't know if your wife has moved on. Here's what I know for sure. If you messed up, Jesus will restore you. He will restore your life. But sometimes we mess up so badly that there are consequences. And I think one of the true signs of conversion is that when we sin, we're willing to accept the consequences of sin. Nobody wants to. I've got a man in the church. He is one of the nicest men ever. And like you, he messed up his his marriage. And his ex-wife and daughters, um, uh, you know, he, they live alone and he, he lives alone. Uh, and, and he... His, his transformation was radical. And we were all praying that his family would come back. It didn't work out that way. But this man was truly converted. He truly met Jesus because even after that, now it's been a couple of years at least, um, even after that, he has really dug in and pressed in closer and closer to the Lord. So, so we know that his conversion was realistic. And while he wanted his marriage to be restored, that wasn't what happened, but that didn't chase him away from Jesus. So if you are coming to Jesus to restore your marriage, you're missing out. You come to Jesus because you're going to hell apart from being born again. And Jesus wants to give you a new life, and he will. The old is gone, the new has come, but it depends on you coming to him. And I think sometimes, Anonymous, we need to get to that place where we say, um, Jesus, I blew it. I need you to be with me through the consequences. But whether my wife comes back or not, one thing will never change. I love you, and I'm going to stay with you. That's how important this is. When people come to Jesus to get their family back, that's not a real conversion. Hopefully it'll be a benefit but certainly not a promise. I don't think we have time for another phone call, so I won't even give the number again. Here's our last question of the day. Uh, Robert says, It makes no sense to me that Jesus would tell people not to tell others when he did a miracle for them. Why wouldn't he want people to know what he did and who he was? Well, uh, Jesus, you have to remember, Robert, was on a very tight timeline, very strict. Uh, when he comes into Jerusalem on the day we call Palm Sunday or Triumphal Entry Sunday, that was the day 
he had to come in and publicly for the very first time be declared the Messiah. Now, throughout his Gospels, especially as he was doing miracles, there were people that were trying to come by force and make him be king. Even to see the way he was teaching and the miracles that he was doing, and the crowds were, were overwhelmed, and they too wanted the Messiah that would deliver them from Rome. And, and you, you remember reading several times in the Gospel accounts that Jesus would sort of slip through these huge crowds unnoticed, a supernatural event, just to get away from them because it wasn't yet the time. And that's the only reason. Something else, Robert, that I think we need to, to, to sort of giggle at together is that every time he told them not to tell them who did this, they didn't listen to him. They went and told people anyway. I mean, they were absolutely thrilled and they wanted to be with Jesus. Who wouldn't? But, but Jesus had a timeline to keep. And it wasn't yet time for him to be publicly known as the Christ. So that would come on April 6th, 32 A.D., and any day before that uh, just wasn't the right time. You know, we often don't think about Jesus being on a tight schedule, but he really was, Robert. Thank you very much. Um, tonight we have our Bible studies, uh, men's and women's. Paula will be teaching the ladies and Pastor Ken the men, 7 o'clock here at Calvary Chapel. Uh, Thanks for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.